Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. And Willa Walsh, and you're listening to... Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two excellent ways to feel good during a pandemic. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. Theme music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today we bring you two stories from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative. Today you'll hear Not Newcomers and In This Community. The Flight Paths Initiative is one of three branches of the Welcome Project. The initiative combines storytelling, history, geography, and conversations about neighborhood life to explore the changing racial and economic demographics of Gary and Northwest Indiana. Beginning with the rise of black political power and opportunity in the 60s, the flight of white residents and businesses to the suburbs, and the automation and consequent underemployment of the steel mills. So today, the two stories we'll be um, sharing with you from the initiative are relatively new to the collection. Um, When we first started doing oral histories for flight paths, we were interviewing white residents and black residents either who were still living in Gary or who had families that had grown up in Gary and then moved out of the city. And I do think that um, what what happened as as the collection grew is that the sense of Gary as a black and white story um, became very prevalent or solid. And and I do think based on a lot of the history of that city um, that the difference or the the dialectic between the black story, African-Americans coming up, especially through the Great Migration, and uh, white European immigrants coming over for jobs in the mills, like that is really pronounced for the city of Gary. Uh, But when we began doing workshops around the stories, what we were hearing from some residents of Northwest Indiana is that there's also a brown story or a Latinx story, and that we really needed to include that if we were going to understand Northwest Indiana and really the, the, the story of Gary. Now, some of the reasons I think that we had missed that is a lot of the Latinx community um, is in uh, East Chicago. And as a city that was outside of Gary, when we were so focused on Gary neighborhoods, uh, we weren't necessarily meeting the, the people that we needed to interview. So I do want to say the the stories today that we're going to be hearing do actually focus on East Chicago. At the same time, um, Liz and I have learned since we began to try to incorporate the Latinx story that there were um, like Mexican or Mexican-American and Puerto Ricans who were living in neighborhoods in Gary. So there is a, a, I guess, maybe like a hidden story of the Latinx community in Gary, too, we won't be learning about that today. So I think, um, did you want to introduce the, the first story then? Yeah, so today on the show we're going to play two stories, both from historians, and we're going to pause in between each to have a conversation about what they tell us. And in our first story today, Miliano dives into history of Latinx residents in Northwest Indiana. This is not newcomers. I think one of the most important things to know about the Latinx communities in Northwest Indiana is that these are not newcomers. This is not a new population to the area. Dating as far back as the turn of the century, between the 19th and the 20th century, there have been Latinos involved in the growth of turning what was once a very marshy swamp land into this industrial, once powerhouse of the nation. They have been instrumental both as workers, as community members, as beacons of cultural institutions. Mexican nationals can really migrate between Mexico and the United States in this turn of the century between the 19th and the 20th because the border at this time is not rigid. It's not even well demarcated. Some of the first early boundary markers that occur on the border are cairns, just piles of stones with a placard that lets you know, you know, this side's the United States, this side's Mexico. The problem is, if we take into account the border between the United States and Mexico is roughly, you know, 1,900 miles or so, you can't then mark every stretch of the mile. 
And so it's very feasible to then, if you are a Mexican residing in Sonora, to cross into Arizona without even knowing it. Even the creation of railroads that connect cities like El Paso with Juarez in Mexico create these travelways, these transportation avenues. The ease of passage between the United States and Mexico is very desirable for industrialists in the Midwest, as well as mine bosses, ranch bosses in the Southwest. Pretty much any capital owner can really utilize then this open border to bring in cheaper labor that they can pay less. They really don't have to concern themselves with year-round. They could hire them in seasonally and then just really, I don't want to say abuse the system, but really utilize the system to create more wealth for themselves. I guess you could say the most concrete uh, movement of Mexicans into the region comes in 1919 during the steel strike. And in East Chicago and Gary, the Calumet region in general, including South Chicago, was one of the largest steel-producing regions in the United States at the time. So a lot of eyes turned towards what would happen here. Militia was called in uh, State's Guard or Army, and it sort of disperses very quickly, ranging from October to November, tending to be like the height of the steel strike in the region. Maybe five, 600 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans are brought into the region during this two-month period. Word of mouth becomes one way because there's this broader circular migration and these patterns of migration with Mexicans and Mexican-Americans communicating with other migrant farm laborers that then there's work in places like Detroit, places like South Chicago, Indiana Harbor, and Gary. There's also the use of labor agents that we sort of see as well when we talk the great migration with the African-American community where companies send labor agents to pool halls, places like Kansas City, Omaha, El Paso, and use them as recruiters to then bring in migrant laborers to serve, whether as seasonal, as strike breakers, uh, across the Midwest. Frederick Marvila remembers his father, Ignacio, telling him a story of how Ignacio and his brothers, at this point the steel strike has gone so long, it's starting to enter the final days of October, the beginning days of November, that his father and brothers are smuggled not by train tracks because the strikers are now blocking the train tracks, but by boat. They are sailed in from Chicago, cross Lake Michigan, straight into the inland still, where then the company houses them in company barracks, providing them company food to avoid them ever having to come face-to-face with the strikers. What a Mexican worker, steel worker, allows them to do is then with this growth of unionization, really take a Mexican national, try to offer them less, try to create this sort of disunion within ranks. Because if they can force a union member to hold animosity towards whether it's an ethnic European, a Mexican steelworker, an African-American steelworker, it really sort of stifles any further unionization efforts. On that note as well, as a steel industrialist, the conditions that they then have to provide a lot of these foreign nationals as steelworkers are not necessarily to par with a lot of standards. So there's plenty of reports that note that Mexican steelworkers were living 24 people to an apartment, and they would then just make sure they were all on different shifts. Whether or not the Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans knew that they were breaking the strike is up to debate. Some are just told that there are these ample job opportunities. They're not sure why they're brought in by train. I'm sure Ignacio Maravilla doesn't remember why they had to boat him in early scholars who will talk then that the Mexican in general was one of the greatest threats to these early unionization efforts then need to also recognize that they become some of the staunchest supporters in the region. People like Miguel Arandando, who's one of the first trustees, he's elected, I believe, inner guard in the 30s to the USW Steelworker Organization Committee, the SWOC. He's one of the first local Spanish-speaking leaders who comes up during this time. So 1919 strike, especially in the region, really in sort of lackluster in the sense that there's not many gains for the workers and the companies really get to continue the practices well into the 30s. Um, in the 30s, there's a lot of studies that have come since with the Follett report that have showed that companies like Inland and U.S. Steel were burying weapons in anticipation up until like the Little Steel strike in the 1930s. It's sort of, I guess you can consider the 1937, 36 little steel strike as 
the actual book end to what starts in 1919. Because then with 1937, we then see the growth of unionization, the Steelworkers Organization Committee becoming the USW, and really a strong, present, militant union becoming cemented into the region. You're listening to WVLP. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte here with Willow Walsh. And today we're playing some stories from the Welcome Project's Flight Paths Initiative, specifically today focusing on some work by historians um, around the Latinx community in Northwest Indiana. So you were just hearing from a doctoral student, Emiliano Aguilar, who's uh, studying for his doctorate at Northwestern University. So, okay, so my first question, there were a lot of dates that happened, (laughs) and my brain is not date, timeline, inclined. So I thought maybe the first place we could start is try to build a sort of timeline that he gives us. Uh, Well, we start at the turn of the century, the 19th into the 20th, um, at a time period when the border between Mexico and the U.S. was pretty porous. Um, And it seems like... um, Emiliano is referring to maybe the first 20 or so years of the 20th century, so 1900 to 1920, and kind of painting a picture of how Mexican nationals would travel into the U.S. to do migrant work, oftentimes traveling back to Mexico. So um, then the next sort of big moment that we really focus on is the 1919 steel strike, because Emiliano is trying to help us understand how the Mexican-American, well, Mexican national and Mexican-American presence in Northwest Indiana became um, more, not just temporary anymore, but more permanent. Um, And then I I think we we mostly focus when we're talking about the steel strike in 1919, um, and then he just makes a nod towards the 1930s as he wraps up this part of the story Um, because there was another steel strike that happened at that time. And so he's seen that as a bookend for the 1919 steel strike. So that's at least how I understand the the timeline that we have going. Yeah, definitely. And I think another another part that stood out to me was, um, oh, like how they have been like how the Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans during this time were like instrumental in building um, like what he referred to as like the swampy marshland or swampland of our area into like this industrialized part that it is today. So I think it's really cool that, I don't know, it's like when I think of, and maybe it's just from working on this project, but when I think of, you know, like Gary in Northwest Indiana, I just, I kind of like my brain starts at like the forties and that doesn't really go before that. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool to think about like, yeah, like this was like a place that did have to be like industrialized and needed people to do that. So I don't know. So I thought that was really cool as like to add to my historical understanding. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull this from my memory. And I was just telling you how I don't have a recall for facts, but um, listeners, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I believe that like Gary as a city was founded in 1909. Like that's when the city um, had felt like I guess maybe let me say that's when U.S. Steel felt like they had um, set up the region in such a way that the marshy lands had been brought under a kind of control and U.S. Steel was set up and running and so the city of Gary grew out of that industrialization. So the city itself was a need that was in response to that, to that industry. So when you think about it, 1909, that's only 10 years before that first steel strike and that's not a lot of time. And um, it also makes you realize how young of a city in some sense that Gary is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that when I was re-listening to this story. Um, So it's possible to imagine like the first Mexican national migrants who are working in agriculture, they're sort of traveling the countryside at the same time that this city is really just getting its, its feet. Yeah, and I love too. Like he also creates this this like picture right after that when he's talking about like the border and like what allows for this sort of like yeah. immigration around our area, 
and I and I just I don't know I love the the, the thought of just like a pile of rocks every few yes. miles that was our border like I I guess I don't know it stands in contrast into how Stark I think about contrast. yeah how I think about <laughs> ours today with like the giant wall or whatnot but so I just yeah that really stood out to me as just like this and I think he he labeled it as you know the open border being really uh, helping kind of fill the sort of immigration that we see around the area. And yeah, and I love that it's like, you're right, it's like 10 years before Gary had this steel strike that they were actually a city. So honestly, so it's like, even when I first listened to this story, it's like I still, like my narrative was still like, this population is coming in after Gary has really been developed, but not really, it's like 10 years, you know? So it's like, this community is there at the onset. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Um, I'm wondering what, as we're talking about this, like um, Emiliano uses the term not newcomers. And and I just, I feel like we're already talking about that. But is there anything else, like, for what it means that the Latinx community is not a newcomer to the region? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I guess this has, like, a couple of different sides for me. I mean, I think, like, on one hand, we do kind of have this this narrative that I think kind of comes out of this steel strike happening in terms of like, you know, having Mexican nationals like boated over from Chicago into the into the steel mills. So I think there's like that narrative that it's like people are, are coming and not necessarily like rooted here. So I think there's that, that like kind of counterbalancing that idea of like being a newcomer when it's like not really like that's right at the beginning of Gary yeah yeah and so I think we kind of get that a little bit but I I also think to the other side of that like I just mentioned the border wall because this is like still a conversation we're having in 2021 about like our borders and immigration yes. so I think it's like it's it's counteracting this idea that that this community wasn't there at the beginning of Gary but also today we're still kind of having that sense of like the Latinx community doesn't have an existing roots in America here. Like we're still like in that weird immigration mindset of like it being so new and we're, you know, a hundred years later. Yeah. Like somehow it's debatable whether the Latinx community deserves or belongs to be in the U S which I think is also, um, and I know our historian doesn't really talk about this, um, for Northwest Indiana, but some Latinx folk would pre-exist <laughs> any uh, European immigrants in the uh, the western states because a lot of the territory actually belonged to Mexico before it became um, part of America. So there are actually um, Hispanic communities that are far older <laughs> than many of the white communities that I feel like today are often being um, pulled into conflict with uh, the Latinx community. So that that just feels really frustrating that there's, and and I I think it's interesting that there's an attempt on the part of some politicians and, and maybe it's not just political figures who want to say the Latinx community are always like infringing. They're always mm-hmm. like just arriving as opposed to um, like really welcoming and claiming the fact that they have been the Latinx community and its residents and members have been such a part, like a fundamental part of building the American society. Um, yeah, I'm wondering when, like when Emiliano is talking about the porous border, um, who do you hear him saying is benefiting from the ability to go back and forth so easily? Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, he's talking about, like, Mexicans who would be crossing at that time, right? Because, but not necessarily, like, it could be, like, a conscious decision, right? But also, like, you could not necessarily know if you're in Sonora and you're crossing over into Arizona because it's so open and you're just kind of moving and going to a new place. So I would say that, like... I, I, well, I guess the workers are benefiting, but I guess that's not the only person benefiting, right? It's these, he also points to the capitalists, yeah. people who own capital that are benefiting from these people coming over who are in need of jobs, in need of, you know, like a community to be in. And so, like, I feel like actually the main benefiter there are going to be like these steel company owners who are benefiting off of this this labor. And so, I mean, and that's, 
I don't know. I also thought of this other point that he makes later on where he's talking about like how the, the, the union steel workers, or not the union steel workers, the steel work companies like US Steel and Inland were intentionally creating this sort of animosity by yeah. bringing in these other workers. And I was, I was curious to hear your thoughts there because I heard a lot of intentionality when he's talking about it. But oh, yeah. what did you take? Yeah, um, let me just note that this is WVLP and we're, listen up, welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And we're talking today about the Latinx community in Northwest Indiana and the historical role they've played in really foundational ways of building up this, this region. Um, so right now we're thinking about uh, the steel strike of 1919 and how the US steel industrialists were very interested <laughs> in um, recruiting Mexican nationals to come in and help break up the strike. So. Yeah, I think it was very intentional. Um, and it's actually an, an old kind of trick. Um, like I read Ibrahim Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning this summer, um, this past summer. And in the terms of like how um, the first enslaved people that were brought into the South and then the Eastern European or just European immigrants that were also sometimes enslaved or indebted, the um, landowners very intentionally created the category of race in order to help distinguish um, the newly white <laughs> immigrants from the, the black uh, enslaved people so that they would be less, the, the white immigrants who were either enslaved or indebted, they would be less likely to um, ally with the black enslaved people. And so it diminished their ability to organize together in order to fight for more, for freedom and liberty. And so we're seeing that same kind of practice used here by the industrialists. And I, I mean, for me, one of the, I mean, it must not have been funny or interesting at the time, but this moment of like them, the industrialists choosing to boat people, Mexican nationals from Chicago into like through the back door so that they could avoid any kind of conflict with the strikers um, who had figured out that they needed to occupy the railroad tracks. Um, I just like that, that detail is so like clear in terms of the lengths mm -hmm. to which the industrialists would go to try to make sure that steel production wasn't interrupted um, even as they were trying to teach the their workers a lesson so yeah I, I think it's um, there's a lot of economic <laughs> drivers behind so much of what's happening here is there other things for you that stood out from that steel strike and or how union unionization efforts were stifled yeah, so, well, I think, too, that there's this idea that he also brings up a little bit later, talking about, like, how, I guess, for the striking steel workers, the Mexican nationals that are coming in and working at the steel mills are seen as, like, maybe, like, an antithesis to, like, unionizing. Like, this is, you know, it's seen, like, their labor is seen as, like, a threat to their union, which is why after, you know, so many Mexican nationals were working at the steel mills. They say that for a while there, they did drop unionization for a little bit. And so, I don't know. I'm There's this dichotomy between, like, Mexican nationals working at the steel mills is seen as not conducive to unionizing, but we have, let me find his name too, mm -hmm. Miguel, who comes and he's one of the first trustees elected to the steel worker organization. And he's one of the first local Spanish speaking leaders uh, during that time. And so that's actually not true that we learned from Emiliano that this like Mexican nationals working on the steel workers are not, not interested yeah, in, in, <laughs> in preventing unionizing. So there's this, there's this, this thing that comes out of this animosity that the, 
the steel, U.S. steel and inland are creating between these two groups of striking steel workers and Mexican national steel workers in order to not tap into each other and both together create a union. That way, Mexican <laughs> nationals get paid as much as the striking steel workers, and that way everybody yeah. benefits in the end except for U.S. steel. But yeah, we can really see those lengths that, that U.S. steel and inland really took to make sure that didn't happen. But they didn't, they didn't catch everybody. They didn't succeed <laughs> um, the whole time. I mean, it is interesting to think that that was happening in the 1930s. So that's already 10 years later. So that's a long time for the workers to have to organize and build up enough trust, I would guess, yeah. across the different uh, race and ethnicities in order to be able to finally get to a point where they can like, okay, we're strong enough now to take on the uh, management or the um yeah the management um and i i'm also thinking that there's some part of the divisiveness that maybe was never i don't know if this is the right language but like conquered because um i mean why would most of the latinx community have stayed in east chicago as opposed to also having particular neighborhoods that they were living in in Gary. Um, and like I said at the beginning, that did happen a little bit, but not in any substantial way that we remember, like, oh, traditionally this was the, you know, the Latinx neighborhood in Gary. It was um, the, everyone in the community was drawn towards East Chicago. And I know that some of that is like, once it starts, it's really powerful because that's where people are celebrating the same traditions. That's where they speak your language. But I also wonder if in part, some of the initial divisions in the labor force, like were not overcome so that they were like, maybe they were overcome in like on the job in the sense of like, we'll, we'll unionize together but they were still going home to these segregated cities and yeah. neighborhoods. So I, I think that's just interesting to kind of think about that those lines actually still exist today too. I mean, East Chicago is still a heavily Latinx community and Gary is still a predominantly black or is now a predominantly black community. Yeah, no, I, I really like that too, because it's also, I don't know, it makes me think that, you know, at first glance, it's like, okay, we have, you know, these Mexican-Americans like Miguel who are becoming part of the steelworkers organization and the union, that there does feel like a little bit of hope there. And I'm thinking like, I don't know, that gives me hope for today in terms of like yeah. the, the divisive culture that we're living in, that we could join together and fight the people who are actually responsible for some of our troubles. But I think, I think that's a good point, that maybe that's why we're still having these same sort of narratives and conversations in 2021, because at the end of the day, even if they were jointly part of the union, we are going home to different communities. Yeah. I think this is something that will come up with our second story today too, but like just to, just to provide a, a counter point of view, like I also wonder if maybe there would be reasons to be grateful for the um, fact that we go home to communities that look more like us, um, whatever that culture is in this case it's race and ethnicity but it might be other cultures that have to do with class or religion or sexuality like if you if you are really working hard either in your workplace or like at a neighborhood or I guess maybe like at a city level or something with creating alliances across difference like do we actually need a place for some portion of our day to retreat to where we feel like we more belong or fit in where there's a little bit more ease as opposed to all that effort to um, build alliances across differences. So I don't know, I feel like mixed in saying that, but I also do feel like there is a sense in which, you know, at some point you need to drop your guard. And so for whatever uh, demographic the current conflict is revolving around again we're talking about race and ethnicity but it doesn't have to be that like you need some way to retreat from that to just sort of like catch your breath mm -hmm. and feel like I, I don't have to make so much I don't have to make such an effort I can just relax um I don't know maybe we'll see if that comes up yes. in the story in the second half uh 
I do want to say that um, this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso. And you're here with me, Allison Schutte, and Willa Walsh. Uh, this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And today we're discussing the Latinx community's historical influence in Northwest Indiana. And we've been talking about um, some of that history, like with a broad sweep starting in the early 20th century. And we have heard from Emiliano Aguilar, who's a doctoral student at Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, for the second half of the of this show, we're going to play another historian, but she's actually going to be She's actually speaking about the same time period, but she's going to be giving us the family perspective. So she's remembering through her own family um, what it was like to come to the region in the early 20th century. And then for herself, we also hear a little bit about what it was like to grow up here. So this is Nicole Martinez Legrand, and she is a multicultural collections coordinator at the Indiana Historical Society. So let's hear a little bit um, from a more personal angle, some of this history. My great grandmother and her first husband, Ana and Felix, came from Mexico City. My great grandmother was born somewhere else. I can't remember where it was, but I don't know how she made her way to Mexico City. And they came to South Chicago, 1928 or 1929, not a good year uh, with the market crash. And so he did work for a census record, the 1930 census record. He was a slideman. And so he worked in a steel company, probably sliding steel down um, kind of a track. Um, but he contracted tuberculosis and he died. And so she was single for a while, met would be my step, step great grandfather, Placido Hernandez. He was much older than her, and I think they probably had maybe two, maybe three children by the time they got married. Anna and Placido ended up moving to Indiana Harbor and actually having a very well-known bakery called P.H. Bakery, so Placido Hernandez. And so the fact that it wasn't called like a panaderia or anything, they just went with P.H. Bakery is uh, telling, but they made, you know, Mexican bread, pan, they made tortillas. My dad said he would remember they would make like full goats, they would roast them, um, they would sell hot chocolate, and I think a lot of people would talk about that. And I grew up kind of in this community because both of my grandparents lived in New Chicago, so if I wasn't at home or at school, I was in East Chicago hanging out with my grandparents. I even took uh, piano lessons at the Clemente Center in Nunez Park, right, which is right next door to Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. Um, in the summers, one of my great aunts would uh, take me and my sister to go count money on Monday from the tithing from over the weekend, so I'd count you know, the givings. So I, I had that duality of you know, living and growing up in Hammond, but also like my family being in East Chicago. Up until my grandparents moved, the Medinas, and then my grandmother passed away to like the 90s. That was another part of my life, going to the Mexican Independence Day parade every year. Fiesta Patria, so the Mexican Independence Day. This actually started in 1926. This tradition continues every every year. And in 1926, uh, they actually they would nominate and elect a queen. So I remember seeing the Festival Queen every year in the court. And then you would go into Block Stadium by St. Catherine's Hospital. Um, and there was this, you know, you have, carnival, like I said, carnival games, pony rides. And they have this greased pole tradition where there's a greased telephone bowl. And there's fries or a piggy bank or something on the top. And then men climb on each other to get this prize I don't know if it was like a thousand dollars it could have been like five bucks who knows but it was like this huge macho thing to do so you're celebrating Mexican Independence Day in the United States so I think you know as generations become farther removed from that notion it just becomes like not not, not in a, I don't mean this in a rude way but just kind of following through the motions you know this is I know where I'm supposed to do this every second weekend of September oh you know we've got to do this so I think you know, understanding the history and the people who started it, all the mutual aid societies, things that they contribute. There used to be a tea, all these different kinds of very traditional events, you know, would happen. And so, you know, it's generation of memory, you know, traditions kind of fade. This is WVLP, and you're listening to Welcome Project Radio's Listen Up with Allison Schutte, that's me, and Willa Welsh. Um, today we're talking about the Latinx community in Northwest Indiana, especially from a historical perspective. And we just heard from Nicole, who's a historian. Um, 
and she's actually giving us a little bit of a more personal take on the history through her family. So my question would be, um, how, like, how does she describe her connection to Northwest Indiana, like Hammond and East Chicago? Like her personal yeah, connection? Like her, yeah, her roots, because she mentioned like the, the bakery with her grandparents, felt very personal. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because uh, in terms of Emiliana's uh, sense of the Latinx community not being newcomers, I feel like we definitely get a sense of that here because she's talking about her great-grandparents, right, and um, how they came from Mexico. So, yeah, she has, a, she has deep roots in the region, and um, she also seems to have, uh, like, multiple roots. So she talks about visiting her grandparents in Indiana Harbor, but she herself grew up in Hammond. So I think um, that's also kind of interesting to think about, like her connection to the region is not um, just to one neighborhood. It's, it's a, to a couple of different places as her family um, took root in different areas. Did you have other things in, in mind that you noticed? Well, definitely the bakery. That was, I love, I love the mention of the bakery and, and the bread and the tortillas. And I think that kind of like connects to, to Emiliano's, like a little bit of the history he was saying as these Mexican nationals are coming in working at the steel mills, it's like there became a greater demand, right? And I think that kind yeah. of speaks to this like rising community that's happening in East Chicago that you can have a bakery selling Mexican bread and tortillas and roasting goats and a lot of people talking about it to you know generate revenue with this business. So I think that kind of speaks to the, the growth of the community, especially. But actually on that point, um, she makes this comment that they just went with the name PH Bakery. And she says that's telling, mm-hmm. but she doesn't go on to talk about why she thinks that's telling or what it's telling us. Um, and I, I, so I'll just ask you first, what do you think is telling about the fact that it's just called PH Bakery? Yeah, so I thought that was so interesting too, because it's like, I mean, I think PH Bakery, right? That takes out any sort of notion of like this being a Mexican American family yeah. owned bakery. But so they went with PH Bakery, not like Hernandez Bakery that would have, you know, maybe told residents a little bit more about it. But they do sell these really niche, like, (laughs) Mexican foods, like Mexican bread and tortillas. And so, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. It's like it seems like maybe on the outside to others in the community who didn't know what it was, it didn't seem like anything out of the ordinary. But to those people who would talk about the business knew, you know, what was there and what was being sold. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I guess I, I wonder if there's even something more than that. because So it sounds like all the customers are going to be uh, Mexican or Mexican-American. And I guess I've been assuming that like the neighborhood it's located in, predominantly the residents would be Mexican and Mexican-American just by the fact of like the kind of segregation that was going on in the region. So it's like it's not being called PH Bakery for like a white clientele yeah um so it was making me think like maybe there's a a sense in a sh- i don't know if a shift in identity is the right word but a sense of like we are no longer just mexican now we are also american and so we won't call ourselves a panaderia we are going to call ourselves a bakery even though everything that we're selling is influenced we're directly associated with our culture um there's this like gesture Mm -hmm. towards like a new identity that's starting to come into being and this was in the 1930s i think 1940s maybe yeah i love that and then also so i wonder too so we get a little bit more about this bakery and i i love the sentiment around like a like a new growing identity especially as like so many like we get a sense of like, especially because of the steel mills, this influx of folks like from Europe and all over the country and Mexico, like there's just so many people coming in. So these like new identities created makes a lot of sense for me. I wonder too, like there was another distinction that she made right after that when she was talking about um, like this duality between being um, like from Ham, like growing up in Hammond yeah. and then like visiting her 
uh, grandparents in East Chicago. And I don't know, this one kind of stuck out to me a little bit because I wonder, I mean, I haven't lived in Lake County, but right now, like, we're looking for houses, my partner and I, in Lake County. And so, like, we looked over in the East Chicago region, and I don't, it's like, Hammond is like a stone's throw away, especially North Hammond. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that, like, that, that stood out to me as being so interesting that there'd be, like, this big difference that she's seeing to yeah. call it a duality so I, I don't know I don't know if that stood out to you but I was I was kind of trying to parse through what what she meant by that yeah and I, I don't think we get a lot of detail in this particular story about that um, we do have a couple others we edited from her interview that give us more detail and it might just be interesting to say that for anybody listening like if you have a particular interest in the Latinx stories of Northwest Indiana both of our um, historians today have other stories that are edited and up on their website and very easy to find through the flight paths category. So if you want to learn anything more, um, we certainly encourage you to go check out those stories. So I think the only thing that we might be able to tell from this particular story is that um, it's a duality of like family, like the, dif- I don't know if this is the right word, the difference between nuclear and extended um, but I'm guessing maybe like at the block level, maybe she was noticing differences between like what it was like to be in the home where she was versus what she was visiting at her grandparents. Um, although the other thing that I can think of, and this is just conjecture at this point, is like maybe the um, Mexican cultural influence was still much stronger in Indiana Harbor or East Chicago. And uh, so she noticed that in some sense as a kid, or even if it wasn't the cities, like the households, maybe her grandparents' households still had a stronger feel for that Mexican cultural heritage. And so she felt like she was moving a little bit between worlds. yeah, so I, I'm not 100% sure, but that's that's kind of where my, my mind goes with that one. Um, I mean, I, I think talking about the Mexican Independence Day here could fit in with that, too. Like, uh, anything that you noticed about, like, after all these years, she's remembered about that that celebration <laughs> yeah well she i mean she mentions there's a festival queen there's which my favorite is the the greased pole tradition where people are are trying to climb to the top of the pole for some monetary prize but i think i mean i think maybe also that experience is kind of speaking to this duality that she's talking about right this sort of like perhaps as you were saying like maybe east chicago has has more of these like mexican-american roots that she's connecting with and like there's more traditions maybe as she's going to her grandparents house there's more traditions around and that kind of talks about like how she is celebrating mexican independence day in this parade or this festival but at the end she tells us that you know these you know as memories change as generations change you know just feels like she's going through the motions as she's going to these festivals so there's this there's this other duality of her identity that's like, you know, other people in this community are really connecting with this this tradition, this holiday, Mexican Independence Day, and she's doing it because she remembers it, she remembers what it feels like going to it, but she just feels like it's, you know, she's, she's going through the motions. I thought, I thought that was an interesting, you know, separation that she created too. Yeah, that, I did not hear that as just like her her person only. I heard her saying that kind of a, more communally, oh. that like for everybody in the community, it's there's a little sense now of it's going through the motions. And she's maybe thinking back to a time when to celebrate Mexican Independence Day um, like was such a necessary, um, like, I mean, it it is like Mexico becoming independent, like that like that that's like the american revolution for americans you know like and and maybe we can relate if we think about the fourth of july like how what features of that have this kind of going through the motion sense to them as opposed to like the event itself of liberation and freedom is so close to your heart that you just like you you're compelled to celebrate it um so that's how i was hearing that um I don't know if, you know, like, I mean, she does say, I know I'm supposed to do this every, (laughs) so it could be much more particular to her. 
Um, although that last statement she makes about uh, as generation and, and memory, I think she's she doesn't quite finish her thought there, but like as they kind of grow and take over, then traditions kind of fade. So it sounds like at least at that point she's thinking that this does happen at a communal level as well as the individual level. And I am definitely interested in kind of unpacking that more and thinking about if that's a good thing or a bad thing that traditions fade. Um, this is WVLP, and uh, you're listening to Welcome Project Radio, Listen Up, with Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. I don't know, do you have other thoughts about whether traditions fading is a good thing or a bad thing? And like, if it's a, if it's a bad thing, who's it bad for? If it's a good thing, who's it good for? I don't know. Like, she says fade, but I don't necessarily get the sense of it fading unless, I mean, unless the celebration doesn't happen anymore in the same way that she's describing. But maybe it just takes on a different life and a different Mm. meaning. Like you were saying with, like, you know, Fourth of July, it's like, I'm not necessarily thinking about, you know, our independence on Fourth of July. I think about not burning the house down with fireworks (laughs) and different celebratory things. But it's it's taking on a new life, right? Like I'm celebrating it still, but in a different way, in a different light. And I think maybe that's potentially what she's noting here, like a little bit about how celebrating Mexican Independence Day used to be like and what it's turning into now. Um, I don't know, like, I'm thinking of, like, for me, I'm thinking of, like, gay pride parades and, like, Mm. I don't know, like, Stonewall and that feel, that, like, that still feels really central to pride, but I don't know, in, like, 50 years, is that still going to be something, like, Stonewall particularly that we're going to point to, or is it just going to be a different, you know, are we going to morph over time as generations change, as memories change? So, I I don't know, it feels like, I, I suppose it's good. Because, I don't know, like, I guess thinking about the 4th of July, I, I don't necessarily want to be stuck to the mindset of, like, someone in the 1700s yeah. getting freedom. You know, it's kind of fun to have, like, this is what it means for us today, yeah. and this is how we do it. And so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think it's just a new life for something. I mean, maybe, maybe like the bakery, too. You know, this is not... This is not, you know, a Mexican bakery. This is PH Bakery that they've decided to do it. This is this morphing, this new life that they've created. And I think maybe that's similar to these traditions, too. They're just, they're not what they used to be, but they're still there in some degree, I think. Yeah, I feel like um, if it's a positive thing, I was also thinking about it in terms of, like, does it broaden who gets to count as included, you know? So... Like if we take the 4th of July, for example, um, if we were only thinking about it in terms of independence, would we only be thinking about like British white men, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or, or yeah. like so. And now if we are actually living into um, or aspiring to live into the full dream of what it means to be American, then wouldn't we want our 4th of July celebration to actually be not so attached to that one specific signing of the Declaration of Independence, but to actually broadly include like everyone, um, every uh, cultural group, every cultural um, or, or every country that had people here that were working the soil um, or building the institutions or creating cultural memories. Like, wouldn't we want them to be seen as a part of that. So I do think like if a tradition fades, it's possible it could allow for, there's more room to include more people. I, when you brought up the pride parade, it, I actually think that's true too, but I almost lament it there a little bit. And like, cause I think when I think about pride parades now, I feel like it's become a little bit commercialized mm-hmm. and it has meant that there is a much broader participation from folks who aren't just queer. Um, but sometimes it feels like the commercialization or the um, invitation to straight folk have sort of watered down like what the original pride parades were, were meant to do. And so I, I do feel like 
there and this must be true of any tradition yeah, that yeah. fades like there is a loss too that kind of grief that comes with with losing your space yeah, yeah. so it is definitely a, a push and pull kind of thing this is uh, WVLP and listen up Welcome Project Radio. I'm Allison Schutte and Willow Walsh. And we're currently talking about a story by um, a historian who has deep family ties in the region. Um, the theme of the whole show today is the Latinx community. And so we're kind of looking back through when her family arrived and, and how then Nicole, the historian, how she situates herself in that. Um, I was actually going to add that I remember Nicole telling us this didn't come up in Emiliano's version of the um, the story of the Mexican nationals um, migrating and doing work and going back and forth over the border. But uh, Nicole mentioned that um, the Mexican Revolution was actually a reason that um, Mexican nationals were wanting to leave Mexico as the st stability of that um, revolution like made it very difficult to know like would the place that you once had and once held still be there for you if you were of the landed classes mm -hmm. and um, so I, I think that that's another important piece of why the Mexican Independence Day being celebrated in America probably had like a lot of of, of weight or heft to it for the original Mexican nationals and Mexican Americans who were here. And I'm guessing by the time, you know, she's experiencing this in, I don't know if it's as late as the 1990s or if it started earlier for her, um, that that like connection to another country's history when you are so deeply rooted in more like the, I don't know if that's like more the American side or not, but um, that something about about that celebration doesn't have this doesn't matter in the same kind mm -hmm. of way. You don't need it in the same kind of way as like in the original community maybe did. Yeah. So it really just becomes more of like a carnival, right? It's about the yeah. games. It's about the trying to scale the the greased pole. It's about like the the queen being nominated and, and having the court and stuff like that. So I wonder, like, with that, like, it becomes, like, in my mind, it sounds like it becomes more of, like, this, like, community celebration. Because I don't know. I guess, t does she tell us if it's in East Chicago? I'm just assuming it's in East Chicago. That is also my assumption. Um. <laughs> so I think there's also this, like, I think that kind of speaks to, like we were talking about earlier about these neighborhoods in, in East Chicago specifically having like these Mexican-American roots and kind of like creating space for that community. Because I think maybe like what you're saying, well, like that's what pride did for so long is just yeah. create space. Yeah. And so this still feels like maybe what the beginning of pride felt like. It's, it's still like that, you know, taking space, taking time to have this celebration, whether or not it means the same thing that it originally did, you're still creating space to you know have a community and celebrate with other people and so but I do want to touch on something that you brought up earlier that I wrote down so I didn't forget it <laughs> <laughs> but this idea of like wanting to have these communities like East Chicago and Hammond but specifically East Chicago in this sense in terms of like having you know allowing yourself to be you know mm. a Mexican American in the Steelworkers Union, but then coming home to your neighborhood and having maybe like you said like a space to relax, a space to be with your community. And I wonder like if we if we can have neighborhoods to share traditions and we can we can come across to the point where at work we can be in the same Steelworkers Union together and kind of unite on that front. I'm, I'm wondering about like regionally for us what that means in terms of like our not only neighborhood cooperation but I'm also thinking of like across city cooperation and like working together and like being better neighbors in our communities. Yeah. So like just one example of this from my brain was just like there is, I don't know, it's probably several years ago at this point, but it's like the snow plows that one of our yes. cities really needed snow plows and like there was this huge uproar about like no they can't use our snow plows and this so there's still that weird 
that weird separation that happens. So I feel like I'd agree that that's really awesome to have these community spaces where there's people who celebrate traditions like you, you know, love the same bakeries and, you know, just have a space for your community. But I think the downside to that would still be it looks like it's still a barrier in some ways in terms of reaching out across. So what I'm thinking first is... um, like when we talk about diversity and inclusion and integration, sometimes I think the ideal that's held up is that the diversity will be fully integrated. So like in that case, you would never have a Mexican-American neighborhood and a black neighborhood and a Polish neighborhood, but you would have neighborhoods that were just like populated with people from all of the different cultures so that the diversity is like distributed. But I think that um, maybe inclusion is not necessarily, or that doesn't have to be the only model or ideal of inclusion, that it could, it could be that inclusion is actually more about equity. And so if we do have this need, this human need, to withdraw and be with people that what however we say you know however we define it like we identify with um who we can be at ease with then um how do we make sure that equity is still happening and so like i'm thinking that some of the tensions that you're bringing up about like well if we let difference stand if we keep things segregated or separated then when we need cooperation there's often a lot of like well why should I help you out why should like why should Portage help Gary out um why should Gary help Maryville out um I think that part of the problem is that like some of these neighborhoods and cities have been disinvested mm-hmm. in and so they don't have the same opportunity to um, flourish and so there's not like equity there's not like a, a meeting um, that is facilitated by like everybody feels like they have something to give and something to receive like if you have something you suddenly feel like you have to protect it and if you need something you feel like very vulnerable and exposed by that Mm -hmm. so i did like that's like only one sort of way to answer the question but i do think that um it's that structural piece where these some of our neighborhoods and cities are not benefiting from the same opportunities as white neighborhoods white cities have been able to um, and that's that's ongoing and still exacerbating problems the other thing i was thinking of is um how we might be losing those places in which we come from our communities and meet with people who come from other communities. So like, I don't know what's happening with labor unions. I know their power has been weakening since the eighties and are they still drawing together a diverse kind of membership that you actually get to work with people across difference there? churches are churches also now segregated well or maybe they still remain segregated um i was a poll worker this last um election and i it wasn't racial difference necessarily but it was political difference and i was like i have never actually just had this common effort that was bringing me together with someone from my opposing party and it was really um i mean there was nothing like the day was kind of long and you know there were certainly moments of just exhaustion but at the same time i had this awareness like wow we have so few opportunities for this kind of thing and i really um so i i feel like okay yes maybe we do need places where we go back and retreat but are we losing the places where we actually do have to work together 
across whatever difference. And um, so we, we might need to be fighting for more of those. Uh, do you want to have the last word today with <laughs> anything that comes to mind? No, I love it. I love that, that, that sentiment. Definitely agree. Love the idea that we can still have spaces for our communities, but then we also still are thinking more deeply about how we can create those conversations and space for those conversations. Because today, obviously, they can turn pretty divisive and pretty on the defensive really quickly. But yes. if you're in a neutral zone, maybe like a voting place, that's it's a little bit easier to approach. But I'd love to see that. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses.